Welcome, everybody, to another edition of ATL Alts. Today, I am joined on the podcast by Sean O'Brien, co-founder and managing partner of Overline. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. You're a local Atlanta venture capital firm filling that gap in institutional capital that I think so many founders and so many folks that are part of the ecosystem here in the Southeast have have long wanted to see filled. So I'm excited to talk about that. But before we do that, Sean, I always like to ask my guests about their background. Uh, yeah. So I grew up in Houston, Texas, actually in a suburb outside of Houston uh, called Katy, Texas. Uh, it used to be a bit of a cow town. Um, today, it's really a thriving suburb. Uh, probably not dissimilar to Alpharetta uh, and its relationship to Atlanta. Went to a performing arts high school and really thought for a time that uh, music was going to be my future. I played the woodwinds and really thought that I had a chance at um, kind of going all the way down that career. Fortunately, it did, you know, it didn't turn out that way. Um, I ended up going up to New York uh, for my undergraduate work at NYU, sort of got swept into the New York City vibe along with um, a lot of my friends who pursued uh, careers in the arts um, or some form of performance. Uh, So I was in New York uh, for the back half of the 80s, uh, which was a very different time to be in New York. So I moved up there when I was 17 years old. Uh, from a small town in Texas, and it was a bit of a culture shock. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with NYU, but there's not a lot of college life going on there. It's really you're sort of immersed in the city. And so I worked from the time I started there. All of my friends, for the most part, were ones that I developed uh, outside of uh, school itself or I had come to the city Uh, with. And so it was really a formative time for me. Um, Didn't have a lot of direction as far as career planning. I knew I wasn't going to make it in music, uh, but I didn't know what was really going to be next for me. Um, I thought sort of halfway through uh, my undergraduate that I was going to pursue law. Uh, And so that's something that kind of stuck in my head. I didn't really know what law was, or um, I just knew I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed sort of debating and all the things that seem to be a good backstop for uh, or, or basis for, for a career in law. Uh, so I graduated in 1990, um, had an opportunity to move to Paris for a year uh, and to pursue an internship in the legal department of a large uh, French company called Slumberger. Um, and I was really excited about taking a year and learning a different culture. Uh, getting myself even farther outside of my comfort zone. Um, And it was an amazing year. Um, Experienced a lot, traveled a lot, met a lot of really cool people, uh, many of whom I'm friends uh, to this day with. Uh, But the one thing I learned very, very quickly in my time over there was that law was not a career for me. And so I was three weeks into my internship and dreading uh, the thought of becoming a lawyer. Um, And so I was a little bit rudderless uh, again in my career. Um, I moved back after that internship, uh, got a job teaching uh, middle schoolers in Katy, Texas, uh, French, uh, which worked out pretty well and started reassessing what I was going to do for my career. Uh, I applied to a couple of management programs, uh, one at AT AT&T. Uh, one at um, Texas Commerce Bank, which is now part of Chase. 
Uh, when the school year was over, I, I started working at Macy's and I ended up meeting somebody who was instrumental in my life, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Jeff Weiss, who was uh, with Shearson Lehman Brothers at the time. Uh, it was really super inspirational for me, because one, because he was wealthy and successful, which was the first time I'd really come in contact with somebody like that. And it was really alluring at the time. It was still kind of the 80s and early 90s when kind of Gordon Gecko was everybody's model of what success of business looked like. But Jeff was a guy who led with his heart and was just a terrific individual. Um, and he was super instrumental in getting me out of sort of this general approach and getting me onto what ultimately was a Wall Street uh, path. Um, unfortunately, Jeff uh, died a couple of years ago in a plane crash, um, but he remained uh, a very personal uh, friend and mentor to me for my entire career. Uh, so he through I can tell you that story if you're interested, but uh, through great luck and happenstance, he ended up pointing me in the direction of Wall Street. I started my career um, with a small Texas bank uh, called Upler, Garen and Turner um, as a retail uh, stockbroker. I knew that's not what I wanted to do. And I wanted to get onto the institutional side of things um, through, again, good fortune. I was able to move to equitable securities in the early 90s, uh, which was a Nashville-based boutique investment bank. Uh, ended up staying there, having a lot of different roles uh, during what was about an eight-year career um, and loved every minute of it. Would have never left Equitable. It was a fabulous group of people, great culture, you know, great time uh, to be in a Wall Street career uh, in the 90s. Uh, but we were acquired by SunTrust Bank and the culture changed pretty quickly. And so I started looking at what else I was going to do. I had a longtime friend, Howard Linson, who had started at Epler and Gar Garrett and Turner with me, uh, who had become a hedge fund manager and had grown his hedge fund to a point where he was looking for some company. Um, and so when he heard I was looking, uh, he was like, hey, why don't you move out to the desert uh, with me here in uh, Phoenix uh, and help me manage my fund? And that sounded like a lot of fun. Uh, and it was. And so I moved out there in January 2000, which was right before the market uh, crash. Um, and we had a great time uh, co-managing his fund for that year. I ultimately left uh, about a year later to start my own hedge fund, um, which was something I really wanted to do was have my own, my own shop, my own fund. Uh, it was bad timing. Still, we were in the middle of, uh, as you can probably remember um, just a crazy time in the market, especially in small cap technology related issues, which is where I focused in my fund. Uh, but I managed to uh, run that for about two and a half years. Um, and then my wife and I had uh, a sort of a personal life change. We were, had tried for many, many years to get pregnant and had all sorts of heartache along the way. And ultimately we were blessed with uh, our twin girls. And while we were pregnant, we were sort of ourselves out in the desert. Uh, her family was all here in Atlanta and I was working pretty much around the clock. And so we decided that it was time to kind of change our life circumstances. And so I ended up going to work uh, for one of uh, the companies that I was an owner of in my hedge fund uh, called P-Tech Holdings here in Atlanta. We moved here to Atlanta in 2003 thinking it was going to be a one-year kind of stint. 
um, to be close to my wife's family. And I thought I was going to take a corporate gig and sort of kick back for a year. Um, didn't turn out that way. We ended up making Atlanta home. And today it's very much home. Our daughters were born here. Uh, they've grown up here. They're now 18 years old. Um, and it's very much home. Uh, that career, or I mean, that job I took for a year ended up being a 15-year career. That was just a phenomenal set of uh, experiences. Uh, ultimately, my primary focus was on strategy and M&A. Uh, ended up running a few different operating uh, parts of the business uh, and just meeting some phenomenal people. Ended up being there 15 years, helped lead the sale of that business to private equity in 2015, and then stuck around for three years uh, to make it a smooth transition. Uh, during that time, I really leaned into the tech startup scene here in Atlanta, uh, started doing some individual advising. Uh, board work for early stage startups, and ultimately uh, found my way uh, at Techstars in early 2017 as a mentor, which is where I met my friend and my partner, Michael Cohn, and the rest is history. That's the backstory, and I really appreciate you um, going in into depth and taking us on what clearly was a journey, right, across, literally across the world um, and back. I want to go back to the gentleman who was your mentor who passed, sadly, um, in the plane crash, Jeff Wise, and talk a bit about mentoring and mentorship. You today with your partner, Michael Cohn, run a venture firm and you are investing in startups, you know, seed stage startups um, where in the research for the show, you know, one of the differences at Overline is really when you're in as an investor, you're in, you know, this is a long-term partnership. And I can tell from just listening to you for, you know, five minutes that you're a very deep thinker, a very deep investor, but so much of it probably comes down to that partnership. So the question I really would love for you to talk about is that if you would, um, and not, not to get too personal, but that, that mentorship and that relationship with with Jeff and maybe some other individuals along your journey, because I think that's very powerful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for what you said there, and 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 for the question. Yeah, Jeff was just an amazing guy. I, I would say that just on a more personal note, my father moved out when I was younger, and so I, I think I was always kind of looking for somebody to give me direction um, or to fill that void, and. You know, like many kids, I probably got into a little bit more trouble than I should have and um, probably didn't have a plan for my life at any point, which I always knew I needed, always knew I wanted. I just didn't have uh, the tool set to do it myself or really somebody to look to, to to help provide inside guidance. And so Jeff was a customer of mine at, uh, at Macy's. He used to come in and he'd buy like five suits at a time and 10 shirts. And I thought that was just the coolest thing. Um, and I think I made an impression upon him one time he needed a suit and our Macy's tailor said it was going to be like 10 days. Um, but I was getting a big commission and there was a, a spot in the mall in the gallery in Houston uh, that did same day alterations. And I said, what if I have our tailor mark you up and let me treat you to having the pants tailored? And so I did that. And I think that made an impression, or at least he told me that made an impression on him. 
um, that ultimately caused him to lean in just that I had a hustle that he admired. I look for that similar type of hustle and founders. Michael indexes really heavily toward hustle. So one of the things we ask founders is what they did in college or what sort of side hustles they had growing up. We think that's a strong indicator of just having something that it's going to ultimately take to be a successful founder. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I thought Jeff was really cool. I picked up the phone and I called him, which wasn't really appropriate because he was a customer of mine at Macy's, but we used to have these books where we would, you know, let customers know of sales and things like that. And I called him and he literally said to me, he said, Sean, I was wondering how long it would take you to call me. Why don't you come on in and let's get you a job here at Shearson Lehman Brothers. And I was blown away. I literally didn't even know what to say. And so I made plans to come in and see him. Um, I bought my first suit, which was just a horrible green olive suit with a colored shirt. It was just the worst. I had no idea what I was doing. I showed up and um, he introduced me to the, the guy who was the hiring manager uh, at the firm. Um, he was walking me through what sort of retail brokerage track looked like. And it was just horrible. I just knew I wasn't meant to work there. Um, and what he did was, I'll never forget. I was like, listen, Jeff, I don't think this is for me, this big firm. I don't know any of the words. I don't, it's intimidating. It feels like it's like a, a track that's not going to work for me. He goes, that's okay. I know a guy. Let me give him a call. And so he picked up the phone and called a guy named Bob Craig, who was the manager of the Epler Garrett and Turner office in Houston. And he said, uh, Bob, I'm sending a guy over there. He's an all-star and you need to hire him. And so he gave me directions on how to get there. I got in my car, left Shearson Lehman Brothers, drove over and met this mystery guy, Bob Craig, who's an amazing, amazing guy. And I got a job literally on the spot. And I don't remember what day of the week it was. It may have been a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, but I started the next Monday. Um, and that kind of set me on the track. And then my engagement with Jeff was just about how to professionalize myself. Uh, I, I want to say that, you know, I, I don't want to say I was a punk because I wasn't a punk, <laughs> but I wasn't like really um, thoughtful and deliberate about the way I interacted with people, the way I carried myself. I was quick to speak my mind. I was quick to um, just get into a self-righteous rage um, about something, whatever. I argue a point where an argument wasn't necessary. And Jeff just was a happy-go-lucky guy. His um, his um, uh, mantra was keep it uh, simple, stupid. Um, and that's something he impressed upon me, but he always carried himself professionally. He was always well-dressed. Uh, he was always polite. He always went the extra mile to remember people's names, uh, to let them know that they were important to him. He was always focused. Whenever he was in a meeting, he would get up from his desk and sit down right across uh, from me or whoever it was to let them know that their time was valuable and important. He sent me a birthday card literally every birthday that I knew him for 30 years. And he did the same for everybody in the circle. And I can't even imagine the dedication to wake up and hand sign birthday cards for right. his network of maybe thousands of people. So he impressed upon me um, that. And then the other thing that he did, which I'll never forget, which um, was ultimately 
um, uh, furthered by another mentor in my life, Mark Hinton, was he impressed upon me that it was okay to bring your heart with you to work. Um, I think when I sort of tried to get onto this professional track, I became a little bit cold and a little bit, you know, by the book and a little bit of, you know, this is the way we do it and this is work and we work at work and we have our personal lives for our personal lives. And I think what he realized and my uh, friend and mentor, Mark Hinton, realized was that that's just not the way I'm wired and that it was okay to bring your heart to work with you and to lead with compassion. Doesn't mean you can't be serious. Doesn't mean that you always have to sugarcoat things, but that, that really impressed upon me. And, and Jeff was an amazing guy. He, was, he did flights for a charity uh, for kids and he was on one of those flights. Um, and his plan went down and that was about two and a half years ago. And it kind of left a gap like it does whenever you lose a friend or especially a friend who's a mentor. Yeah, I, I really, you know, want to thank you for sharing that. Um, and what a tribute to, you know, to that relationship and to, I think, just the power in, you know, allowing yourself to be moldable and shapeable. And it sounds like you were at a point in your life where I think probably a lot of folks find themselves either today, perhaps that's because of COVID or maybe at some point in their career where you do need that outside person, that relationship. Um, maybe that isn't a family member, maybe it isn't a colleague, maybe it's somebody that, you know, sees something that you're not seeing and more importantly, is willing to stick with you. Um, and that's, that's the part about mentorship and that story that really um, stuck with me is that you you were able to show vulnerability and say this particular role that maybe you thought or I thought I was interested in wasn't for me, but he was willing to say, hey, let me go a step further, pick up a phone, call somebody I know. And that's just, um, it's, it's just so hard to find. And, and so I appreciate you sharing that. And I can here in you telling that story, Sean, some of the things that um, when I look at Overline in terms of the ethos and the values, you know, that your firm is built upon, a lot of that rings true when you hear that backstory. And that's really one of the things that I'm trying to, to, to do in this podcast. Incidentally, I think you said this on another podcast, you might be the indicator of when a city or a part of the country is about to, to really grow because you were in Nashville, it sounds like in the 90s, you were in Scottsdale, Phoenix, you know, in the 2000s. Here we are now in Atlanta. Of course, it's grown and you were a part of that as well. So you have to let me know if you decide to pick up and move your family. Yeah. I'll do it. I just wish I had uh, kept uh, real estate in those places when we left. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about uh, where you and your partner, Michael, cross paths. The, the way I met Michael was really simple. It was through a good friend of mine who today is um, in a strategy uh, uh, role at Cox Enterprises, Scott Letourneau. Um, uh, Scott is just a great guy. And uh, I had shared with him that you know, I was thinking about what was next. And he goes, you need to meet Michael Cohn. You know, Cox Enterprises is the corporate partner for Techstars Atlanta that Michael was uh, running uh, at the time. And Scott knew that I had an interest in early stage and was doing some investing and advising and things like that. 
And he goes, you need to meet this guy. He's going to remind you of Seth Rogen, which he did. <laughs> and he's a great guy. And you should get involved um, as a mentor in Techstars. And so uh, he connected uh, me and Michael almost five years ago. Uh, we sat and we had lunch. And I was like, wow, everything he was saying just aligned with everything I was feeling um, and loved the way he was approaching, uh, selecting and then supporting uh, the founders that he was bringing into his cohort. And so I signed up immediately over lunch and I'm like, I'm in, how can I help? And ended up supporting his 2017 class and his 2018 class. I've since uh, Michael and I have leaned in and um, supported in various capacities, I think a dozen different Techstars programs mm-hmm. um, and worked with an awful lot of Techstars founders, helping them think through um, challenges in their business, um, helping them think through selling their business. Uh, But that's what originally brought us together. What kept us together and kept us on this path is a similar ethos, a very complementary set of skills and experiences uh, that we bring to the table. You know, our Venn diagram overlaps on what's important. but we have very different experiences. He's a tremendously successful founder himself. Right. Something that I'm in awe of. Um, he was one of the founders of Cloud Sherpas that mm-hmm. started in his basement and ultimately grew to around 1,200 employees and 200 million in revenue and uh, was acquired by Accenture one month after we sold uh, my old company to private equity. And so, and he just has, um, he's got a great nose on him for, um, you know, mega trends that are emerging, uh, areas that we should uh, stop and focus on or dig more deeply into. I bring a very different set of experiences that are more finance related and more deal structuring related. And so, you know, we, we believe that we make a strong team and we both have sort of that founder operator uh, experience and background, which separates us from many other VCs in the region that are truly finance only, uh, that haven't had um, the opportunity in their careers to roll up their sleeves and have operational experience, which we think separates us from many of the VCs that are out there. One thing that you said, I'd love to have you ex- expand on, which is you know, the areas of the Venn diagram where you overlap and are aligned, because it sounds like you do bring unique experiences professionally and personally to the table. You talked about each of your respective backgrounds. What were those common areas that you needed to be aligned on? Um, Ethos and values, for sure. Uh, Michael and I, you know, share a common uh, belief that the best way to support founders is through a uh, deep level of engagement, a deep conviction going into an investment, um, deep level of engagement on an ongoing basis, and um, you know an authentic relationship grounded in truth, um, and you know being direct with feedback, um, doing it in a way we don't always get it right, but our intention is to always deliver it in the spirit of support, even if it's really hard truths that we're sharing. Um, I think we also aligned on what the need was in the market and what we could bring that made us, um, you know, a good potential fit to solve the problem that we saw out there in the market. And then a common vision for what we're building. You know, we never set out and there's nothing wrong with launching a fund. There's a lot of funds out there. 
And there's a lot of um, fund managers who they just want to have a fund. That's what they want to do. They want to pick great companies. They want to drive great outsized returns for their LPs. From the very start, uh, Michael and I shared a vision uh, that's something different than that. It's really creating a platform uh, here in the community that becomes part of the funding ecosystem and the fabric of everything that's happening here in the Southeast. It's a much bigger vision, much harder to pull off and to get right. Um, but we didn't set out to just you know, have a one and done fund or a series of funds. We really want to um, come together and have Overline stand for something that's um, different. That's not just about a check, but it's about the people that are there um, in support of the founders who are trying to make it happen here in the city and across the Southeast. And so we love it if we dove into that more, but the areas that we overlapped on were our ethos for sure, um, but also our vision and how we wanted to um, build out um, this firm of Overline to support founders today and to create a launch pad for founders in the future. I do wanna talk about that um, more. You know, you and Michael have been behind the scenes to the vast majority of people who don't spend their day in technology investing in startups and in the ecosystem, right? Um, so from the outside, you know, in, you're looking at the MailChimps of the world and you see this overnight success, quote unquote, right? Oh, it's a billion dollar, you know, unicorn or it's a multi-billion dollar exit, clearly there's been years of work that you and Michael have put in behind the scenes of building this ecosystem. I've listened to you talk about the valley of death, as they call it in, in the venture funding um, terminology, where there was capital you know, for angel rounds uh, for startups when you're raising 100,000, 250,000, but when you, you know, and then when you're raising 5 million or you're raising 10 million, there might be more institutional capital. But when there's this, you know, million dollar need or there's a million and a half dollar need, there wasn't this institutional capital in the Southeast and, and specifically even, even in Atlanta. And having worked in the industry for over a decade, I experienced that not just in venture, but in, in other asset classes, hedge funds private equity, et cetera. And, you know, on the one hand, I want to applaud you guys for staking in the ground. Like we're going to try to address this, but secondly, and what I'd love for you to talk about is this notion of really making a multi, um, multi-decade like commitment, right. And building an ecosystem and talk about operating partners that you've, you know, recruited to the team and, and maybe just spend some time on you know, setting that vision, because it is a pretty big vision. And I'd love selfishly to, you know, understand it, because it sounds like it, it could really have a profound impact on the kinds of companies that are born here and in, in the region, but also that stay here with all this talent we have and all these young people that want to be here and all these people that are moving to the Southeast. So I think it's a pivotal time. And I'd love to hear you talk about what you guys saw and where you want to go. Yeah, um, that's great. There's a lot uh, sort of dig in there. Um, you know, the first thing I'd say is 
we are coming in late in a story that's been written by many, many people for many, many years in our city. And um, I just want to be clear, we are building with others um, that are committed to the city and to the region. Um, and we take inspiration from those who've been here uh, for, in some cases, decades, um, you know, before we were even thinking about sort of the tech startup scene uh, here in Atlanta. And so it's so much fun to see this moment in time here in Atlanta. And like you said, it when everybody's seeing it from the outside in, they're going, wow, this just happened overnight. But really, there's been people who have been, you know, building with intention. Um, many of them are friends of ours. A few of them are investors of ours. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are as a city without the efforts, the collective efforts of dozens of people who've been making it happen and who are still out there making it happen. So for us, you know, that value of death was real and it still is to a certain extent. The good news is over the last two years, seed has exploded and we as a city and as a region have attracted more funds that are also working to fill this gap. Um, we've said from the start that we would celebrate the day that founders in our region would have a stack of competitive term sheets on their desk uh, to consider just like they do uh, in more mature venture markets. And that's becoming the case. It's, we're not there yet, but it is um, becoming the case. Um, and so what we want to do is we want to stand for pre-seed and seed investments, institutional investments here in our city and in the region uh, that come with more than just a check. Uh, it comes with a commitment of our time and attention uh, and our experience and insight uh, and support and help, as well as you mentioned, our operating partners. We've been fortunate enough to attract a few dozen um, very experienced founders themselves in some cases, in many cases, people with deep domain expertise um, in things like marketing or product or technology, architecture, whatever it is that have raised their hand and said, hey, I would like to be part of this overline platform thing. Uh, and I'd like to be supportive either of you and your efforts at Overline by helping you get smart on trends or helping you get smart on emerging technologies or changing buyer behaviors or competitive landscapes. Or I'd like to help your portfolio companies in a mentor capacity or an advisor capacity problem solve, uh, get access to you know network of potential customers or talent or whatever it might be. And so... That's a big part of our difference is we're just not handing them a check and saying, good luck. We'll see you on our board call. It's, um, you know, we want to be building with them. Um, and then something else that you mentioned, I think is important to our ethos is we never want to be about shining the spotlight on ourselves. We have to, um, because, you know, if we're building in a vacuum, people aren't going to be aware. And so it is important for us to, on occasion talk about Overline, but we really want to be intentional about shining the spotlight on the founders in our portfolio and those here in the community uh, that are on a journey and building. Um, you know, that is our goal is to create a platform, set a stage, have a microphone and a spotlight for these founders to tell their stories, to celebrate their successes, to ask for help along the way. Um, through a community that we're building that's called the Overline Platform, which we can talk more about. And then the last thing I mentioned, and I know this is a bit of stream of consciousness, is 
you've had all these people who have been building up to this moment in time, and we're starting to be known on a global scale and a, certainly a national stage here. And we talk an awful lot about this flywheel, about you know once it starts spinning and once you start seeing unicorns being minted here in the city and you see founders who are dropping out of those unicorns who've seen what it takes to go from zero to 10 and 10 to 50 and 50 to 100, they wanna start on their own. And once you have successful exits that are funded by people in our community, that, that money comes back into our community and gets reinvested back into the community, in support of founders who are building the next generation, it becomes this flywheel. And so Overline, like others in the community, we're here to exist to push on that flywheel and make it go faster and ultimately create uh, that circular kind of virtuous cycle of goodness that you see in more mature venture markets where you have exit, cash comes in cash gets redeployed into the next generation of founders and then just kind of keeps going and going and going. And fortunately, you know, right now it feels like our, our flywheel is picking up momentum. And that's something that we're along with others are encouraging. You launched your first fund, which I know you, you oversubscribed your first fund and then recently announced an opportunity fund. So can you just take us through the timeline of, of Overline? And, and then I do want to get back to asking you about the platform because um, you've had some announcements and some recent investments uh, in terms of adding to your team at the platform level. So those are the two things I'd love to talk about next. Perfect. Um, Michael and I really decided that we were going to go in early 2019. Uh, we talked about it. He was wrapping up a three-year commitment to Techstars Atlanta. I was wrapping up a three-year commitment to uh, the private equity firm that I was working with at the end of 2018. And we we're like, gosh, this could be something special. And so in early 2019 is when we really said, hey, let's see what this would look like. We started working on strategy documents and you know what our vision for the firm would ultimately be. Um, but what we did practically speaking is say, what do we need to do to know how our friendship would translate into a partnership? And so we did the what we thought was a logical thing, which was, we started investing together as angels uh, through the lens of ultimately leading toward a fund. And so even though we were angels, we were building a pipeline, we were meeting and diligencing uh, companies and opportunities. We were going through all the steps that we're doing today of creating an investment memo and everything, even though we were angels and we were personally funding uh, some investments together. Uh, we ultimately warehoused three investments um, in advance of starting the fund, those three investments came into the fund and um, they're, pr I'm proud to say they're all doing really well. Um, relay payments, pad split and uptime health. Um, and so through 2019, we looked at hundreds and hundreds of companies, made a few investments and we started building a process and sort of a strategy for what the fund would look like. Uh, we ultimately put together a marketing deck around the holidays in 2019 um, and started marketing to our networks. Uh, we were lucky enough to get a couple of anchor commitments early uh, from uh, Cox Enterprises and MailChimp, uh, which helped us along the way. We set out with a $25 million target. Uh, we ultimately closed on $27.5 million. Uh, we had our first close of the fund. 
uh, at the end of February of 2020. And our first capital call was due on March 13th of 2020, which is the day you'll remember that the world <laughs> yeah. shut down. Right. Timing was really not great. I know that date. Uh, I have to know that date, number one, because my wife um, of, of over a decade, Heidi, um, that's her birthday. And we were supposed to go to dinner on her birthday. And this thing, pandemic, I mean, it was a thing then. I mean, we're in Atlanta, right? Like we weren't in the hot zone. At least we didn't think. And so we were just like, well, maybe we don't go out to dinner. And, you know, so we canceled the sitter, didn't go to dinner. And of course, everything changed over that weekend and, and ensuing months. So I have to ask you, I keep diverging, but I have to ask you. So you're raising a first fund amidst this environment that we're all confronted with of a pandemic and all the uncertainty. Can you just take a minute or two? And it's like, what was that like? Because you're a first time fund raising uh, you know, your first time fund manager is raising a first time fund. So you're an emerging manager, as they say in the industry, and you're trying to get obviously some, you know, some momentum out of the gate. You do have three warehouse investments. So that, that, that gives you something to talk about, including, um, you know, ones that have, have worked well, but um, what was that, what was that process like, you know, courting LPs? Yeah. You know, fortunately we just met some phenomenal people along the way and, you know, we were deep enough in um, getting toward our first close, which was, I'm trying to remember, around 17 and a half million was our first close that we closed at the end of February. We were far enough along um, by the time the pandemic hit that it didn't really cause us any notable challenges. Uh, we did only ultimately have one um, partner who decided it wasn't the right time for him, and so ended up not closing on his commitment. Um, but other than that, we were really fortunate that um, everyone else came in and that we were able to, without really trying that much over the next year, uh, we were able to raise an, um, an extra $10 million and get to 27 and a half, which was ahead of our target for the fund of 25 million. But it changed everything in the investment landscape. And this would be a whole other podcast just about how things have changed. We certainly did not set out to, um, you know, take seed and pre-seed, which is very much a in-person type of investing. Right. You're, um, you're doing diligence and you have a hedge fund background and a research background. So I know that you spent many years showing, meeting management teams, doing, you know, doing a lot of that. Um, type of work that comes with, you know, getting to know a team and a founder. And it, particularly, as you said, with the seed and early, early stage companies, I mean, you said it says on your website, I mean, it's the people. <laughs> yeah, it's the people. And I remember at the very beginning, Michael, Michael was a little bit more less, it was a little bit more flexible and less rigid than it was. But I remember saying, there's no way I'll ever like, <laughs> make an investment, get comfortable making an investment in somebody I haven't personally met. And here we are a year and a half later, and we've written several checks um, over Zoom. Um, out of necessity and candidly, we've been able to adopt, like uh, adapt to a new environment and adopt new ways of getting to know people on a more personal level via kind of regular interactions on Zoom. But uh, yeah. So we closed that first fund. Um, well, we had our first close in the fund um, early um, early in 2020. We had the last close of the fund earlier this year, one year to the day after our first close. Um, and then, 
you know, we view that as an MVP fund, um, you sure. know, for what will ultimately be a, hopefully a larger seed fund, uh, you know, coming up in around a year to 18 months. And a few months ago this summer on one of our regular strategy retreats, uh, Michael and I started talking about, well, our goal will be ultimately to have an opportunity fund to invest in breakouts in our seed fund uh, and in other breakouts in the community that, you know, may have started their journey before Overlam was even founded. Um, we should, rather than thinking about raising our first opportunity fund when we raise our second seed fund in a couple of years, we really see some immediate um, opportunities, for lack of a better word, to put capital to work in some really compelling deals. Um, and so truly from concept and first conversation um, to actually marketing a, a, an opportunity fund, I think it was a matter of days or maybe a couple of weeks. Um, and we only offered the opportunity fund to our existing LPs and our seed fund. I think we had maybe eight calls, 10 calls or something like that. We set out with a goal of a $10 million opportunity fund. Uh, we ultimately closed on just over $13 million. Again, it's a, it's a different strategy for that fund, but the same ethos. Um, and it's a bit of an MVP fund. Um, and we're hoping to deploy it on a similar timeline with the seed fund and be back out in market with our second seed fund and our second opportunity fund late in 2022 or early 2023. Wow. Um, but yeah, we've been really lucky and really blessed that the community has embraced us, not only LPs um, and institutions and corporations, but also, you know, founders that are looking to, you know, partner with a, a firm like ours. When you meet founders, when they're thinking through who to partner with, what do you want them to understand about your approach at Overline uh, in, in who you partner with at that seed stage? It's, uh, I mean, it's everything. <laughs> I think practically speaking, your seed round, uh, pre-seed round, depending on which way, where you take in your first check. First of all, it's the most expensive capital that you're going to take in, so you better get it right. <laughs> Um, it's also a long-term commitment. Uh, you know, it's sad. To, I saw a stat that the average marriage in the U.S. is something like seven or eight years. And that's what we plan for as seed investors, for our investors. So when you think about it, when we're entering into a relationship at that stage of a business, it's the same as entering into the average marriage length. And so you better understand, you know, who you're inviting into your company and what they stand for, what they're looking for, what they have to offer um, and what their expectations are. You know, for us, as I said before, it's more than a check that we're trying uh, to come with. We're trying to come with um, help uh, and insight and shared experiences to help founders accelerate their success or to avoid potential pitfalls or to learn from people who've been in their shoes. Uh, we think that's a really strong value proposition. Um, we also like to say that we have as much to prove as first-time fund managers, as our founders themselves. And we think that that sets us up with a bit of an edge um, that, you know, that we're in their corner you know, swinging on their behalf, um, just like they are. Uh, we also, um, at, in our seed fund, we only invest 
during the seed stage. And so unlike a lot of the funders that you mentioned that are out there with checks today, you know, their primary, you know, these big, huge funds, their primary focus is to get in some cases five and as much as 50 or $100 million into a company. And so they'll show up early with a half million dollar, million dollar check, million and a half dollar check, but it's really a placeholder um, for later stage uh, check. That's not us. I mean, we're out of the game, um, you know, by the time the company gets to this series A. And so once we make our first investment, we're 100% on the side of the founder, helping them navigate what's coming next downstream, you know, helping them determine what's the best strategy for your series A, who are the right partners. We don't have any ulterior motives because we've already made our investment and we are, uh, our interest is 100% aligned with the founder, which is unique uh, to a company with an approach like ours. Um, and then I, I would say, you know, with the highest level, not to sound trite about it, but in your series A and beyond, getting a brand name to endorse your company is really important. Getting a Kleiner, getting a Sequoia, getting a Andreessen um, can be the difference of anointing you, you, your company as the one uh, in the industry. Uh, and that it, it's difficult to quantify that impact. But at the seed stage, what we tell founders is that's not the time to get a brand name. Um, the, the, the seed stage is about who's going to work the hardest for you in support of you and your objectives to put you in the best position to attract those first tier investment funds at the Series A and beyond. And so um, all I can say is um, we're not, we're, Michael and I are humble enough to know that we're new at this and there's lots of firms and lots of platforms and lots of choice for founders. But the one thing that we can say is that there's not another firm that's going to work harder than we are on behalf of our founders or put as much heart behind um, you know, what we're doing in support of them. And so we think it's a strong value proposition. We know that as it gets more competitive, we're gonna win some, we're gonna lose some, but we want to be very transparent about who we are and what we stand for um, so that you know, founders know exactly what they're getting into. Well, I like a lot of things that you said and a couple that stick out to me, having done a lot of diligence and research on all different types of alternative investment firms and managers and teams, particularly in the emerging manager space over the course of my careers, you have the background, you have the experience, you are part of the fabric and the ecosystem and alluded to the fact that, you know, many are still out there that came before you and are part of that in some cases, even LPs. So there's a, there's a flywheel element there just in terms of things like deal flow. And, you know, what do you think of these, you know, these guys, what's your read? The other thing that really struck me that I'm I'm impressed by is that you recognize, you know, that the seed fund is for seed stage investments and you set up a distinct vehicle, the opportunity fund, offering just to your LPs the opportunity to invest in some of those breakouts, right? The opportunity to invest in some of those potential unicorns is you're bringing something additional to the table. And I'd love for you to talk about some of the recent hires you've made on the platform side, and maybe you could expand upon this overlying platform. Because one of the one of the conversations that I had recently was with a, a very large venture fund to fund, and they are investing in emerging managers, and they're looking for platforms 
they didn't say fund ones. They said platforms. There's a big difference, you know, um, and, and it seems that you are really planting the seeds and maybe even are ahead of other emerging venture managers in investing in the platform early. You did it early. Why? And how did you begin to execute on that component of your strategy? Yeah. First of all, thank you for that question and that observation. Um, I'm going to answer that before I do. I want to go back to what you said about the seed fund and the opportunity fund. I want to be really clear. We are not creating something new. Sure. We are students of some of the best in the business that have come before us, the Sousa Ventures and the first round capitals and the ones who have really defined what seed stage looks like and how to do it right. And so what we are doing is we're borrowing mm-hmm. <laughs> and taking inspiration sure. from the ones that have really set themselves out as the best in the business. And we're bringing it here to Atlanta and to a region where that hasn't existed up until this point. Same with platform. And so for us, platform is really formalizing a couple of things. It's formalizing our operating partners and those individuals who have said, hey, we want to lean in and help, whether it's helping support Overline in our process of diligence and our process of you know, getting smart in industries so that we as a generalist fund can compete in a broad array of uh, Uh, different types of investments or lean in support of our portfolio companies. The other thing it's doing is aligning our portfolio founders and uh, teams in support in a more formalized fashion of how they can support each other through best practice sharing, through, you know, just questions and answers and advice and having safe spaces to kind of interact. And the third element is really bringing together uh, the community of founders that exists beyond um, our portfolio. Um, you know, in our case, at this point, it measures many hundreds of founders here in the region that are building that aren't funded by Overline, but have a lot to offer into this community. So bringing that all together is really important to us. It's important because we want Overline to be synonymous with building in the Southeast and in particular in uh, preceding seed stages. And you know, selfishly, we believe that if we put together a community and give them opportunities to interact both virtually in Discord communities, in online events, you know, like our Overland Third Thursday, which is knowledge sharing from you know all sorts of industry experts, um, we know that goodness will happen that will result in more people thinking about Overland and ultimately better, more qualified leads coming into the top of our funnel. <laughs> so right. I want to. That I, I want to acknowledge the fact that the intention is pure, that we think that we have seen this model be successful in places like Silicon Valley, where there's just this, everything comes together in the community setting with all of the ingredients to make success happen. But there's also this very practical thing that as that happens, we believe that it'll enable us to continue to be the funding partner of choice for founders built in our region and ultimately be able to deploy much bigger funds, which is our intention downstream. Well, I can imagine with, with your M&A and strategy background, not to um, minimize the experience in research and in and, and, and the brokerage world and, and running a hedge fund, but also you know, combined with Michael's background as an operator and then running Techstars, being the founding MD of Techstars, you know, 
you put that together to me from the outside looking in, I mean, that is a pretty powerful ingredient to say, what does an optimal platform look like? And I can speak from experience having been a part of one startup's recent um, completion of Techstars cohort in Atlanta, one of the most powerful things that came from that experience, you know, that the CEO reported was just being able to spend time with other founders, sometimes right. in completely different businesses, and then being surrounded by all of this mentoring and all of this guidance, you know, from people who really want what's best for you and for your organization. They don't have a financial gain to, to be had. Of course, um, you know, there aren't going to be overnight successes in 12 or 14 weeks uh, of, of a, of a accelerator, but the relationships that come out of that and, and the learning that you get from, from other founders is what I heard repeatedly from the CEOs as some of the positive feedback from their experience. And it sounds like that might be a part of, you know, what, what you might be trying to, to, to do. Yeah. Huge part of it. And um, again, this is something that's been proven time and time again. Um, and we're trying to do our part to formalize it. There's others in the community have, who've done it as well. The one missing ingredient for us was somebody to run it for us, who brought a passion and insight and perspective from having community building experience in her background. And so to answer the other part of your question, we recently brought on Sarah Saxner Coughlin um, as our first full-time hire on the team. She's amazing and just brings a wealth of experience uh, and passion for doing just this. It is very atypical for firms to invest in bringing on someone like Sarah and invest in a platform this early. We want to, to be intentionally early here. So far, it's really paid off in many, many ways. And so we're just excited. We're just starting, candidly. Yeah. When we think about the goals and ambitions we have and what's in our notion right now from a vision and what we're going to be rolling out over the next 18 months, stay tuned. I love the idea of getting an update from you, um, Sean, and, you know, in, a, in, in six months and hearing uh, the platform, because I think it's, you know, I'm self-interested because I'm here in Atlanta and I want to be, you know, supportive of the things that, that uh, my guests are doing, but also because it, it will have a meaningful impact, you know, for anybody that lives in this market they want to have a thriving economy. You want companies to be started here, formed here, have major operations here. And that will only happen with talent and capital and that supportive ecosystem, particularly at the early seed stage. When you're thinking about building your team and your culture, what are you um, looking for and what are you looking to build when you know people see Overline folks out in the community um, and they pick up the phone and say, hey, I met one of your colleagues. Wow. You know, what, do you, what do you want them to say? It's a great question. And we were absolutely thrilled to bring on Michael Davis as our first venture partner. He's been working with us for the better part of the year, supporting two of our portfolio companies as an operating partner. And he's at a point in his career when he's got bandwidth and interest to do more. And we certainly want as much of his time as he can give us. And so... Um, yeah, he's been a phenomenal um, member of our team. I think anybody who meets Sarah and Michael Davis will instantly say, I get it. I get it. I get it why they're on your team. They represent our brand, the aspiration of our brand, the best um, uh, measures of ourselves, the, them as individuals, 
the way they carry themselves, the way they care uh, about what they're doing is they are all world talent. And that's what we want on our team is all world talent that cares deeply about not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it and how we're going to do it. And both of them uh, exemplify it. I don't know how to say it. Uh, I appreciate the question. I've never been asked the question, but that's the best way I can answer it. Um, and we are really thrilled. We are continuing to add to the team. Uh, we just have our first intern uh, from Keenan Flagler School of Business at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who's starting with us in January. Um, we've got an intern uh, from Emory MBA candidate starting this summer. Um, and we're hopeful that we're going to continue to uh, grow. And as you know, our assets under management grow and our number of funds grow, you're going to see our, our team continue to expand in advance of where we are. Yeah. Well, that's great for, you know, for, for the venture community that there are going to be opportunities for young professionals, uh, folks, you know, coming out of undergrad or graduate school, or maybe looking to go from being an advisor or an operating uh, partner to a venture partner. But I think it's also big for, you know, for Atlanta. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is I wanted to shine a light on um, for, for the 98 and a half, 99% of people who, again, don't spend every day working in the trenches, how all this happens. And I really wanted to try to illuminate the people that were doing that work and shed light on it and hopefully do three things, educate folks about this industry and about opportunities, inform them about what was happening in their backyard. Lastly, and maybe even more importantly than the first two was inspire them. And the only way um, people will be able to, in my opinion, get that inspiration is if you go behind the numbers, if you go behind the fund and behind the people and get their backstory. I appreciate you, you know, sharing, you know, so much today on the show about, you know, your experiences early in your career, um, your mentoring relationships, and then kind of your vision and, and your ethos for your company. I always like to end the podcast with a question or two on more of a personal note. Number one, you're raising a family. You've had a lot of life experience. You've lived in multiple parts of the world. What are some of the lessons that you, you know, you, you want your own children to take away from what they've witnessed and observed over the last couple of years? First of all, that you can do whatever you want to do. And there's not just one path to, you know, there's not just one you know, journey ahead of you. It can have multiple, you know, twists and turns. And I didn't even know finance was a thing. I never had a finance or an accounting or a math class in college. And here I am in the middle of, of you know, a job that requires that as, you know, sort of the basic um, building block of, of the function. I was a politics and economics major, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And here I am doing this. And so I think that um, one thing I try to tell them is where you start really um, doesn't have much to do with where you're ultimately going to end up. And then just, I mean, we're a family first family. We're very, very close. We spend a lot of time together. Um, we celebrate and we encourage that in our founders that they unplug and that they'd be present in the moment with their family because you only have one, you know, one shot at this life and there's so much more than just um 
you know, the, the drive for success and the hunger and try to instill that in my daughters as well. You know, where we overlap with our fund and with our family is just the kindness uh, and caring can carry you far. And it's not an inhibitor to being success, successful in no matter what you pursue. I mean, there used to be a, you know, sort of a, um, a stereotype of what was going to be successful in finance. And it was just everything that's just, I abhor about sort of, you know, kind of the way I started and this vision of Gordon Gecko to bring it all the way back. And, yep. and that was just the way it is. And I think now what's so cool with, especially in venture where you've got non-traditional investors who are coming in, who are founders who are very high on the EQ scale, who are, they're just people that have a deep level of empathy for the founder journey and want to be a part and be supportive of it. And I think that carries, um, and that's something I talk to my girls about all the time, that you can be kind, you can lead with your heart and have passion and compassion and be successful in whatever you choose to, to pursue. One of the things that you said earlier in the conversation, Sean, is that when you realized from your mentoring that you could be yourself at work, I'm sure that's when really things probably started to take off. So my last question for you is, how do you realize when you're kind of in your zone? Yeah, I think it, um, first of all, I'm a work in process, just like everyone else. And so I, hadn't, I don't have it all figured out. And so hopefully you and anybody who's listening knows that that's the truth is I work and I struggle just like everybody does. Um, and a lot of the founders that I meet, you know, they're just earlier in their career and they haven't made as many mistakes and haven't had the opportunity to learn from as many people as I have. Um, and so one of the things that I always tell people is don't compare your chapter one with someone else's chapter 10. In this case, it's, it's the truth. So my, I'm a very disciplined person by nature and a very routine centric person. I wake up early 4.30 to 5 every morning. Uh, you know, I start my day early and um, it works for me. Yeah, uh, I work out just about every single day, uh, which also works for me. And I, the days that I don't work out, I can really tell the difference in my energy and my kind of mental state. Uh, I also start my day um, just kind of reflecting on just gratitude. And I don't want to, I mean, that's kind of a personal, it may not work for other people, but intentionally yeah. think about things that I'm grateful for in my life. And I think it just sets my head in a different mindset, um, focusing on a deep level of gratitude and humility about the success that I've had and um, the things that I've been blessed with, which just helps me keep balance personally. And I think that that carries through. And so th there's no one right answer for people. Everybody's got to, and I take inspiration from a lot of people um, about how they manage things. And I'm also an inbox zero guy, which helps me organize all the chaos that's around me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would imagine with the success you're having and uh, the, the growing team, the, you know, the bigger vision, the platform, the, the commitment to the, the ecosystem and the region, that it does require a system, you know, that, that, that you probably continue to refine. But I just want to tell you that it's really been a joy to, to, you know, get the backstory of Overline, get the backstory of you, Sean, um, and hear about, you know, the journey that, that you're on. I think it'll be great for the region. I think it'll be great for Atlanta and, uh, and obviously to the founders that are part of your portfolio today. And 
I would imagine will be a part of the portfolio as you continue to invest um, that they'll benefit and, and thrive as well. So with that, Sean, tell us where we can learn more about Overline. How can people engage with, with you and, uh, and, and with Michael? Uh, great question. Um, so the, probably the best front door for us is our website at overline.vc. Uh, if you're a founder that's building in the region, we want to hear from you. So please submit your, there's a short intake form there. We look at every deck that's submitted um, and we try to provide helpful feedback, even on the ones that we um, aren't a fit for. Um, and then I'm on uh, LinkedIn pretty actively, uh, as is my uh, partner and friend, Michael. Um, so you can find us, Sean O'Brien and Michael Cohn on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. And find us, connect to us. We hope to hear from you. Sean O'Brien, founder, managing partner of Overline in Atlanta. Thank you for joining me today on ATL Alts. Interested in more details from this podcast, go to the atlalts.com website where I'll post information from today's conversation, as well as the Twitter and LinkedIn handles for Sean and his partner, Michael, and as, as well as their website. And please engage with us on social media. Leave us your comments, feedback. And if there's somebody that you think we should interview on a future show, please drop us a line at andres at atlalts.com. Thank you, Sean, for joining me today on the ATL Alts podcast. Thanks very much, Andres. Talk to you soon.